You're listening to the Hound Steve English Podcast, a comfy place to talk about all the great and not-so-great parts of teaching ESL abroad. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Hal. Howdy. Today we're going to talk to Chris Hinsala, who started teaching ESL in 2011 in Mokpo, South Korea. He's the man behind Listen and Learn English on YouTube and the author of the Storyteller series. Ah, hello. It's nice to meet you. Stay tuned. All right, guys, before we dive into this awesome interview, we've got to shamelessly plug everything we've got. So if you go to our website, you'll find our free weekly resources. We've been churning out some pretty great stuff. We've had Uno, Human Bingo, The Mafia Game, and what else, Hal? Uh, we've been, I've been working on the uh, Build the Recipe series, so you can uh, build a, your kids can build a hamburger or pasta or salads, stuff like that, and uh, working on uh, Go Fish as well. Great. So there's a lot of awesome stuff on there, and there's some cool stuff coming in soon. So check that out, and uh, we want your money. So if you go ahead and pay for our monthly membership plan, it's only 10 bucks a month. You're going to be supporting Hal and I as we drink soju and eat fried chicken or spicy noodles around Korea. So much appreciated. All right. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. No problem. So where are you from originally? I'm actually, I'm from America. Uh, I grew up in Michigan and all over the eastern seaboard. Okay. And where are you now? I'm in Mokpo, South Korea. All right, and I, I tend to say this on all of our podcasts now. So we've got to find out how you got from where you started on the East Coast of America and then how you ended up here in South Korea. Hmm. So can you tell us about the first time you thought about teaching ESL? Uh, yeah, it was pretty dark times, to be honest with you. Uh, I had just, I'd recently graduated with my MBA, and uh, I had a pretty awesome interview with General Dynamics in Sterling Heights, Michigan. And they basically said, you have the job, and showed me my office, which was amazing. It was a contracts position. And I get home, and they said, we're going to send you some information in a couple of days. So just don't worry about it, and then we'll have you sign the contracts and come down. And the next day, I got an interview that says, you are kicked out of the system, and you are no longer in the running for this job. And when I contacted... The people who interviewed me, they had no idea. It was some kind of weird fluke in the system. So I lost that job. There was no way to get me back in because it was some type of military government thing. And once you're wow. kicked out of the system, you have to wait a year for the uh, security clearance to come back. So that was was pretty dark times. And uh, just kind of went back to my house in, in Michigan, which is in the middle of nowhere. Right. I lived in the U.P., and uh, I just got super, super depressed. And uh, it was one of those things where I need to, I need a big change or things are going to end badly for me. So that's when I started thinking about Korea. And where did you first hear about this ESL teaching in Korea idea? Uh, I, was, uh, I was actually still in grad school. And one of my friends, she had graduated with a communications degree. And she was, she was cutting hair. And I was like, why are you doing that? And she's like, I can't find a job. Um, she was over in California, which was ridiculous. And I said, why don't you go teach English? You know, I started off as a joke. And she's like, what do you mean? So, of course, me, I, I'm like really OCD and I start researching things obsessively. 
And uh, it turns out that it was a pretty good opportunity for her. So I got back to her. I said, hey, you should go check out one of these places. You don't have any debt. That was one of the cool things. And uh, she ended up going to Thailand. And she just loved it. She was there for a year. And she kept telling me, I have to come there. I have to come there. I'm like, I got a, I got a master's degree in business. I'm going to have no problem getting a job. <laughs> so that's where ESL came from. Great. And so your friend was telling you about how awesome it was. Yeah. What was your family saying? What were your other friends saying? Were they scared that you were considering it? No, actually. Well, my dad was out of the picture at that point, And my mom, she was just like, you got to do what makes you happy. And right now you're pretty angry. <laughs> so, you know, she was she was supportive in, the, in that she really didn't have a choice in the matter. So, you know, she was fine with it. And how did you find your first job here then? Did you contact a recruiter? Yep, I went through a recruiter and uh, man, I don't I don't really recommend that unless it's unless it's you just want it. You just want something you don't want to worry about anything. Like you just want to have a job and it's going to be okay. Go for a recruiter if you actually want a good job, don't go for a recruiter. You know, it, it doesn't take much um, to find a decent job. So but yeah, I used a recruiter because I didn't know any better, and it worked out. I mean, I, I worked at that first school for three and a half years. Oh, that's fantastic. So what type of academy or public school system did you get yourself into? Um, I went I went into the Hagwon route. I went private academy because at that time, I just couldn't imagine teaching uh, the public school system. It just I saw a couple of videos, and I thought, I'm going to go brain dead if I keep teaching you know, these PowerPoints and you know, have 30 kids repeat the words back to me. And uh, when I when I was talking to the recruiter about that, he said, oh, I've got a great place for you. You can teach math and science at this academy. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And um, I wound up there and yeah, the job was great for the very beginning. I was getting kind of messed over on pay. But at that point, I just, I didn't, really didn't care. I was so much happier than where I was in the dark times after general dynamics thing that, uh, I just kind of ignored a lot of stuff. But uh, yeah, the job itself was great for the first two years. I love to hear about everybody's flight over and their first mm -hmm. day and getting picked up from the airport and their first week in general here. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about that little transformation? Uh, Well, my it took me like 32 hours to get to Korea. It was pretty brutal. Um, well, I mean, I'm sorry, not Korea. It took me 32 hours to get to Mokpo because of just waiting for layovers and, and then waiting for the bus. I missed the bus. When I got here, the, the recruiter had someone who was going to pick me up. That was part of their their pitch, you know, their sales pitch for, um, for their service, whatever. And the guy was standing outside of the, uh, the exit from the international part there. And he's got my name, it says Chris. And I'm like, oh, cool, there he is. And he's like, come, come, quick. And we're like running through the airport and he's like come quick i'm like what is this is crazy so i'm i'm exhausted right i've been traveling forever and and i'm running through the airport in a country i don't understand he's like he goes he buys me um a bus ticket and he's like here he gives me the bus ticket and he's like and he points out where the buses are and i didn't know anything and he's gone disappeared i kid you not get disappeared <laughs> and i'm looking at this thing i don't i mean i can read kareem i don't know what it means you know i'm not some kind of idiot savant or anything and i'm sitting there i have no idea so i just look like this lost tourist with a bunch of bags 
and I'm not even next to where the buses are. But luckily, this cute little girl decided she was going to take kindness on me, and she pointed over to where this platform was, and I found the platform, and uh, I just kind of stood there like an idiot. And uh, I, I ended up getting on the bus, yes, but if it wasn't for that little girl, Korea would have been kind of a nightmare. <laughs> That sounds so much like every story I've heard <laughs> coming to Incheon Airport. Uh, it's so much easier now, but that first time was awful. They always do that. There's always some guy that kind of sort of doesn't work for the recruiter and is there mm -hmm. to pick you up and then runs frantically through the airport. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was uh, not, a, not a big confidence booster. But like I said, you know, I was just riding this wave of excitement and, you know, I kind of look back on it as a laughing moment, but man, that was pretty garbage if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. So you get on this bus and mm -hmm. can you tell us where Mokpo is in South Korea? Mokpo is all the way at the bottom. I mean, you can't, you can't go anywhere further than that. It's, it's all the way at the very end. Uh, and it's the big port city right before you go to Jeju. So you come here if you want to take the boat. And uh, it's, it's a four and a half hour ride from Incheon. And what was going through your mind as you're watching all the countryside of South Korea through the uh, windows? Maybe, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe it was the uh, anti-anxiety meds that I, that I had got for this specific trip. But uh, I slept. I was, I was dead. Wow. I, I, didn't, I didn't even see anything. I didn't care at that point. I was just numb. It was, like I said, it took me 34 hours to get there. And, you know, it, we were, <laughs> it was just a long thing. I, did, I didn't care anymore. When I got there, I arrived. It was the last bus to Mokpo, which probably why the guy was racing to get me to my ticket. And when I got here, it was, it was like 1230 at night. And uh, the bus was full, right? And I get out and one of the guys who's a teacher at the, the academy, he was there to pick me up. And uh, he was this, <laughs> he was this cool-looking little Korean guy, but he wasn't Korean, right? He was from Canada, and he's just standing there smoking a cigarette, and he's like, "Hey, how's it going?" <laughs> you know, he was one of the teachers. He's a he's a Korean. He was, you know, uh, he was born in Korea but adopted to Canada. But he was my first person I met in Mokpo, just standing there casually smoking a cigarette, twelve thirty at night. Hi, how's it going? So that was pretty fun. <laughs> oh, that's great. So you had a you had an expat friend the first day. First day, yeah. We went before we even got to the house. We took all of my stuff, and he's like, first thing you have to do is have a beer." I'm like, "That's a great idea." And uh, <laughs> we, I had three bags standing, you know, sitting there. We went to Chicken the Home or something, and we had we had fried chicken and beer. It was <laughs> it was like the best ending to that whole you know long trip. <laughs> so yeah. That probably is definitely the best welcoming event I've heard of. Usually everybody's real tired and they have an awkward interaction with their new coworkers, but that sounds pretty great. Yeah, he they were really he was really chill. The other the other two were kind of off their rockers, but yeah, he, he was really chill. So um, you get there and what was your apartment like? I assume they provided housing? Oh, oh yeah, that's that was horrible <laughs> oh my god yeah so t all right so let's talk about illegal stuff right <laughs> the school had this like partition to the building okay and the school took up the vast majority of this uh of third 
second and third floor of the building. I'm trying to remember. It was a while ago. And uh, there was a partition built in to these two floors. But on one floor, the second floor, was where they had built uh, little apartments, let's call them. They really weren't apartments. It was, it was like a ship's hold type thing. And there were four little apartments built into this thing. And I got lucky. I got the smallest room that had no window. And uh, <laughs> man, it, you could you could hear the students running through the school um, during the, you know because they had they had classes all the way till midnight, which was totally illegal too. But you know Korea, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was awful. Really, it was awful. We all had our own bathrooms, and uh, but we all shared one small water heater, and it was that was a nightmare. You know, trying to schedule it. And we had a big, we had a common room, which was neat. We had a big fridge and, you know, if, assuming everybody's real family and, and, and having fun together, that would have been an awesome little cool apartment, but it wasn't like that, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, that was, it was just kind of a crap hole place, you know? It wasn't the that greatest. Reminds, that reminds me of a book that I picked up called, uh, I think, No Couches in Korea or No More Couches in Korea. Oh, Yeah. And there's a, a guy who came here in the late 90s, I believe, and he ended up in a situation like that in shared housing that wasn't technically legal. Mm -hmm. So you ended up there on your first night. Yeah, that, yeah, that was the that was the apartment. I walked into an apartment, you know, and that was the, there. There was pluses and minuses, right? Uh, the plus was that I went into a fully stocked apartment, right? It actually had sheets and everything was cleaned up for me and ready to go. I had forks, I had the whole thing, you know. It was, uh, that was nice. I had a fully stocked apartment in, in a Western sense. Cause I certainly didn't have that for my second job, but <laughs> you know, we'll get to that later, I guess. So how'd that first week go after you met your one cool coworker and your kinda not so nice apartment? Mm. What happened the rest of the week? The rest of the week was uh, pretty fun actually. I had no problems. Um, and it was weird, like I, I had a cool vibe with the, uh, the director, the owner of the academy, because from like day one, I she realized I wasn't afraid of her and everybody else was terrified of her, right? Like she was kind of a monster to the Koreans and uh, and the other foreigners were always afraid of getting fired, but I was just kind of like, I don't really care. Like, I, <laughs> I don't care, you fire, okay, fine, you know, whatever. But this is this is an adventure for me. And because I wasn't scared of her, she, she was really cool with me and we always had really, good interaction together and I think everybody was jealous of that but uh, well hey you know you make your that own bed might kind be of some that might be some really good advice you can share with our listeners because many people do have these kind of weird and or scary relationships with their academy bosses where their academy bosses kind of hold on to their visas and oh, you know ridiculous. you so so you recommend just walking in there being fearless well, my thing, I'm different, man. I <laughs> I don't recommend anybody acting like me ever. I think that's that's terrible advice. But uh, definitely, definitely go in there and know your worth at, at the very least. You know, know your own personal value and and know that they need you, no matter how much they act like they don't. You know, you're not you're not someone they can just go to the store and pick up a new one. You know, you you have value until they can replace you for sure. So don't let them walk all over you. That's ridiculous. So you're there in your first week and everything's going pretty well. 
How was your classroom? What did your classroom look like? And what were the expectations for how you taught the students? So I was the math and science teacher and uh, my room was really nice. You know, it was just a standard little classroom. I had a nice, the whole back wall was all windows overlooking the, uh, the street and the buildings across from it. But uh, the class was, you know, small, was nice. There was a good air conditioner, good fans, things like that. And uh, the curriculum did not exist to a real extent. The person who made it before was just, it had to have been one of those let's drink all day foreigners who came to teach ESL because uh, it was not really actually a curriculum. And um, I was supposed to teach math twice a week and science three times a week. And I quickly realized that I wasn't teaching math anymore because these kids were, you know, little calculators and they didn't need to know math and English after the first few days. It was kind of ridiculous. So we turned into science really quick for the long, for the long haul. And uh, that, that was really awesome. Nobody seemed to care that I stopped teaching math, which was funny. The kids must have been really, really advanced for their age in English then. Yeah, this school did... Um, well, no, okay, not everyone. There were there were some there were some terrible ones, but uh, this school was. They, she set up a cool program. She had math, science, writing, English, and social studies, um, and it worked out really cool. In it was kind of like a rip on an international school, but the curriculum just didn't follow it. You know what I mean? The teachers weren't adequate, and it, it just didn't. It worked, but it didn't work. You know. It was, uh, it reminds me of, of like English Village. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. We just did an interview with a teacher there who started in the first year. Yeah, I, I, it's similar to that, how it was kind of like, you know, theme-based stuff, but more of a, more of a, a subject-based theme thing. It, it, the curriculum was terrible. Let's just say that. And it was proprietary. Like the, the owner had made her own curriculum. And you could tell it wasn't made by a foreigner. Like, there was severe grammatical mistakes. The pictures were clip art to be kind. And uh, it was just full of, it was full of terrible stuff. So there was a lot of printouts and, and ad lib work that I had to do, but that made it fun for me. So most people probably would have freaked out, but I, I actually enjoyed that. Yeah, it's really great. I think that's one thing that freaked me out when I first came here. There was no curriculum, mm -hmm. and I didn't know the kids' levels, and I was just really having a hard time. Well, the thing about so, this school was it was a business. You know, it, it, she wanted it to appear as like a teaching school with a, you know, a unique curriculum approach, but it was a business. But uh, so we had kids that uh, that didn't speak any English at all. They were in the wrong levels, but she wouldn't get rid of them because they were paying. You know what I mean? So they just kept getting promoted despite being completely terrible. Yeah, that's insanity, kind of. Did the kids end up sticking with you, or did you notice that over the years the, the hagwon decreased in size and the students started quitting? <clears throat> um, actually, no. Um, once I started, I don't know if it was just coincidence or what, but we rapidly increased uh, our student body. We were up to 95 on average and usually over 120 so it was a it was a pretty big school to that extent and we we always were full I mean there were 13 to 15 kids in each class kind of thing 
um, I think my smallest class ever was was eight. I never wow. went below that. She she was great at business, and the kids the kids really loved me because I mean I I I give them candy and things like that. But we had we had a unique reward based system that I made, and then um, the uh, the director. She set up another rewards-based system where, like, if the kids did a hundred homeworks or something, they would get some big gift certificate to the movie theater, which was really cool. So the the kids actually did all their work, you know, because they wanted that movie theater ticket. But uh, I don't know. It was it was definitely an interesting place for sure. I really want to ask you about, you know, how your social life developed after, because you were talking about how you had two coworkers that you really didn't get along with. But if I could distract you a little bit mm -hmm. and talk more about that reward system, could you tell us about what you did? So for me, like um, a lot of the foreigners, when they when they have classes, they just give candy and they give chocolates or something like that to the kids. It, more of like, let's be friends. And then, you know, if, if you're cool with me, I'm cool with you kind of thing. But mine, I, I, I didn't do that. Mine was like, you did something awesome. And it didn't have to be, you did your homework. It didn't have to be you know, something specific for an assignment. It had to be, you did something really good. Like you, you had a great answer or you did something really nice for somebody. Like I started rewarding people based on qualities and traits that I find necessary in uh, children. And the kids started to act like better people. So that was kind of what I was doing. I would give, you know, if you gave, you got a hundred or something on a test, I would give you candy. I'd give you a clear reward for having great grades and things like that. But for the most part, kids would get rewards for doing good stuff. You know, that was how I did my reward system. That sounds really familiar. We tend to incentivize manners. Yeah. So whenever I notice a child congratulating another kid for mm -hmm. winning at rock, scissors, papers, or for making more sentences, in class we try to give that one kid who congratulates the others some mm -hmm. points yeah you really need to teach manners especially at academies because they don't learn it anywhere else it's it's kind of sad it, you know it, it seems like um like a uh, like a glorified daycare sometimes where we actually have to raise the kids a bit you know and and the manner thing does not exist until you give it to them so I, I noticed that every new student that comes in, I have to like force feed them that idea that you will be good in my class. You will be kind to people and uh, bullies are not tolerated. I, I despise that about kids here is the bullying so how thing. Do, yeah, the bullying's just insanity. How do you handle the spoiled kids who just cry when they uh, when you don't even pick on them in class or I'm sorry, when you don't select them to answer a question or they lose at rocks or paper, something really small. They just whine, whine, whine. How do you handle that? Well, it's uh, it's it's different for both of the schools. Like my new school is really different from the school now. My first school, if the kids whined or complained or something, we would just send them outside. And the thing was is that the director had this really cool lady who was um, they called her the counselor, but we just she just walked around with a stick basically, <laughs> and. Um, you know, if the kid wasn't doing something or did something that disrupted the class, we would just say, get out. And they would go outside and you'd hear them get whacked or something or yelled at. They didn't do that at that school. You know, I, there was no issues with uh, complaining, even though there, a ton of them were rich kids, you know, spoiled kids. Uh, but th there was no issues with that. They, they clamped down on behavior problems really fast. And that was another thing that made the, the school popular was that 
we didn't allow any kind of nonsense in the classes because my school now definitely allows that kind of garbage, which is why I'm leaving. <laughs> so. So how did your personal relationships develop over that first year? The like I said, the the, the first guy I met, he was awesome. Uh, he him and I, we did lots of drinking together. We did lots of uh, stuff outside of school, and uh, he was great. Uh, he ended up going back after two years because of some nonsense at the school. And uh, the guy who replaced him was pretty cool too. We did some rock climbing together and things like that. But uh, the other two, they, it wasn't that we didn't get along. We got along. They were nice enough, but they had, uh, call it strong religious beliefs that made me scared. So I, I tended to avoid them. Can I pry and ask which denomination? <laughs> they were like uh, super, super Christian to the which... point. Uh, I, they, were, were they expats or were they Korean? No, they were expats. Uh, there were four foreigners at this school. Yeah, okay. they they were like, they were like the Earth is six thousand years old, dinosaurs aren't real, kind of Christian that just didn't vibe with me. So <laughs> we didn't we didn't hang out a lot. You're so polite. That would be <laughs> terrible to live with. That would be quite the nightmare. Oh, I made fun of them. Don't get me wrong, but I'm trying not to sound horrible on podcast. <laughs> oh, I, I know. Oh, w man. Was it so bad that you couldn't even drink in your apartment? No, no, no. I, I would. That would never have stopped me. I would have drank in front of their apartment door if that if, you know, made me laugh. But uh, no, they, they weren't like that. They weren't forcing their opinions on a, on you. But they sure said their opinions a lot. And boy, some of them were nuts. And I don't know yeah. how she did it, because when, when those two left, the ones that replaced them were absolutely the same kind of crazy. So I don't know where she was recruiting these nut jobs from, but let's just call it what it is, man. They were crazy. Yeah, it sounds like the recruiter she uses goes to fundamentalist school somewhere oh, in America. Yeah, it was nuts, man. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't hang out with them, but I wasn't, you know, I was cordial with them. I wasn't angry at them for their misguided beliefs. But uh, yeah, you know, live great and, way to put it. Live and let them do their thing as long as they don't try to. I love dinosaurs. Don't don't try and take that from me. <laughs> so was there a big group there in Mokpo of other expats that you hang, you hung out with, or did you kind of stick to the? The Korean buddies. Oh man, in the very beginning, Mokpo had the best expat community and it does not exist anymore. So yeah, in the very beginning, it had the best eclectic mix of foreigners that you could imagine. You would go to the, there was one big expat bar that was started by a foreigner that these two Korean girls, sisters bought and they were running it and it was awesome. And you would go to the bar and the lights would be on. There was no smoking in there. You'd, you'd, you'd sip a scotch and talk about, you know, books or something with one guy. And then you'd play poker in the corner with someone else, you know, or you would. It, it was just a really cool mix of people, you know. But uh, that, that disappeared shortly after, maybe in the next year and a half or something. All the uh, long-term expats started to disappear i mean these people had been there for five to ten years never leaving the city and they're just like this place isn't the same i gotta get out of here and uh there was this mass exodus of the cool expats replaced by these whiny artsy little kids who think that they can draw 
you know, and, and bronies and garbage like that. So, <laughs> Some, someone laughed back there. I think Hal, I think Hal's got the exact same experience as witnessing the transformation and the quality of the expats. The quality yeah, I... is decreased. Oh yeah, what, what, Hal. <laughs> oh yeah, I was just gonna say, I, I, a lot of this is funny because I, I tell Steve exactly the same thing. I got here maybe eight or nine years ago, and. Uh, Sounds pretty similar to, to your experience. Mm. Um, I, yeah, and I, I don't know how to put it when when I'm trying to describe the the difference of the people that were here before versus now, but I like the way you put that <laughs> just now. There's a distinct lack, lack of uh, interesting qualities in people now. Now it's more of like people watching and less of people interacting. You know, before... I wanted to talk to the people, you know, I wanted to hear their ideas. And now it's just like, look at that weirdo. Look at, look at that. You know, it's, it, it's like watching a train wreck kind of thing. And, and I'm serious. And they're so uh -huh. obsessed with how cool they are or how unique they are. And it's like, no, I know why you're here. You're here because you had no friends and you had a horrible life in America or whatever country you're from. And you thought, I'm going to remake myself as something awesome. I'm going to go to Korea and be cool. And you're still not cool. And that's what it was. They, they try so hard, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're an empty painting, you know? Yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty right on. And I'd add to that, that you know, you mentioned you were here on an adventure. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the kind of people I met at the beginner, beginning. They were just like basically adventurers but as as the years progressed it was more either like you say or it was they came here they knew about korea and they loved k-pop mm. or, or this or that after the k-wave yeah um but yeah i'd say that people in the, we didn't know anything about korea actually we were just you know on an adventure yeah i came here because i you know, I'm, I'm a business guy, so I looked at the numbers. I'm like, who's got the best cost of living to, to pay ratio? Well, Korea right. won that one. That's the only reason I chose Korea. It wasn't because of it wasn't because of K-pop or any of that kind of stuff, and uh, definitely wasn't because of the dramas. <laughs> you know, it was just a business decision. Yeah. I, uh, what what were the what was the ranking back then? At? I think Korea was number one, and maybe Japan. Something like that. It was. It was. The cost of living in Japan's just kind of insane. Yeah, the cost of living is insane in, in Japan, and um, right now it's like right now Korea is not even close to number one anymore. You know, that's another right. reason why I'm getting out of here. It's just the opportunity. That's that's the problem with Korea, among other things. There's a there's a ton of problems with uh, teaching in Korea, but. One of the things that's main for me is just the opportunity to advance and increase your your lifestyle is just not here. You have to go outside of the system, and it's not worth it. Well, yeah, let's let's move forward in the story a bit then, and, okay, and uh, eventually make it to the to what you're thinking about for the future. Oh yeah, okay. So what happened? Um, I'm assuming it's also there's so many parallels mm -hmm. in all of our story that we. I hear similar things, but um, so I'm guessing maybe 
there was a boss change because it's kind of like make or break with the school. So you said you, you changed schools eventually. Yeah, I ended up, uh, I left Korea for six months because I had an opportunity to buy a grocery store in, uh, wow. in an area. And that fell through because when I was getting the numbers, that's the thing. Like I said, I'm a business guy. It was tossing me the numbers and, you know, the numbers sounded fantastic. I'm like, I cannot believe the... You know the profit ratio on this this grocery store I, it's a it's a no-brainer so i i ended up quitting my job which you know like i said they were kind of screwing me over on my money anyways and uh but it wasn't really a big deal because i just didn't care i was still enjoying it and um oh yeah there was another big problem at that school too which was the final nail in the coffin but you know the i went back to do the grocery store and that fell through that actually turned out to be inflated numbers it was a terrible terrible decision so that was a six months of just bleeding my savings dry and trying desperately to get back to Korea and get back to some semblance of normality. And, uh, it, and, then, and then I came back to, now I'm back at a new school, which I can't wait to leave. <laughs> but I've been here for almost five years. You know, I've been at this school for going on five. When I finish, it'll, it'll be, because I'm finishing a few days shy of the end of my contract so I can leave and get to get to China in a good time. But it'll be, yeah, it's just a few days shy of five years. Yeah, go ahead and jump in, Steve. I heard so many awesome things that you guys were talking about. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. You owned a grocery store? That's I, insane. I was going to. We were going to buy the grocery store. Um, I had the backer and everything, and... It was going to be a big partnership. I was going to run everything. And it just, when I got there and cracked open the books, and I mean, they were like legit old school books, you know, like with tape on the covers. I hadn't seen these green books since, since <laughs> like pictures and accounting books, you know, like pictures of old school ledgers. And I just yeah. went through the numbers. I'm like, you couldn't take a photo of these and send them to me when I still had a, a job in Korea, you know, and it was just, they were bad. The numbers were bad. It was like someone guessed and just spit numbers on the page. And when I did, when I finally figured out the, the cost to profit ratio, I was just like, this is not worth it. This is not worth my time. This is not going to work out. We ended up backing out of the deal. And uh, someone else ended up buying it and they had to do so much work and revamp it. But I think they're going to be successful with it because it's a family venture. But uh, for what we were gonna do, it just it, it wasn't it wasn't in the cards. So came back. <laughs> I hear this so often. I went back, Hal went back, so many of the people I know went back mm. and we all returned. I, I should have knew something was wrong when I got into the airport in uh, Chicago and my skin started to crawl because of all the English and and then realizing all the garbage they were talking about like the, the the idiot things that they were saying i'm just like wow wow what happened you know i just i just became super super cynical of people i the worst when oh man i almost had a panic attack when i went to walmart the first time and watched this this it was i don't know maybe their husband and wife boyfriend and girlfriend but this skinny meth looking guy was pushing this big woman in a wheelchair and they were having an argument about stuff that shouldn't have been screamed in Walmart and ah I freaked out I had to go back to my car and I was just kind of hyperventilating you know it's like I can't do this <laughs> I gotta get out of this country 
you know? Was... I hear you, man. It's so weird when you go back and you experience the culture shock of your own country. Ugh. Yeah, you don't realize how much stuff you just ignore. You know, you, you ignore so many things. and you, it, But you come back and it's just full frontal assault. Because, you know, you started ignoring Korean. You know? Well, I did in the beginning. Now I don't. I try and listen. But, yeah, when I went back, it was just horrible, the stuff that was going... I, I went into the... Was it? it was a Wendy's at the Chicago airport. And I remember buying, getting my burger because I was waiting for my next flight. And I just slowly found myself backing out of, out of it because it was so noisy. You know, it was just an assault. All this English at once it was freaking me out. I sound like a big baby, but man, it was weird. It really is this huge disconnect. So when you came back to Korea, why did you choose Mokpo again? It was, call it comfort. Um, but honestly... The, I, I put in my job, well, I put my resume up on a couple of websites, and I got a contact from this guy. He, he's a Korean guy. He went and graduated from, from graduate school in Canada. Perfect English, real, you know, handsome type guy, and he wanted to start this teaching academy. He's like, I don't like academies, like they're set up. I want to have this real teaching school. He's like, I've got a master's degree in English, and... Uh, I want someone who's got lots of experience because we want to start this school. And I was literally the first foreigner. I, we started the school. There were no students when I got here. And uh, I just kind of liked the I kind of liked the stuff he was selling me. And uh, in the beginning, that was pretty much what it was. But uh, it, it dissolved into into not that <laughs> towards the end. So. Yeah, that's that's what got me back to Mokpo. Was just he sold me this 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 chance to really make a difference because you know at my old school, like I said, it was a business. It was a business first and teaching second, and and uh, I didn't like that. But I liked teaching the kids. I liked when they understood stuff and learned things. So that's that really hooked me. And uh, actually, that's what hooked me on my new school in China. <laughs> so yeah, but that's how I ended up back in Mokpo. There are so many teachers who want to know what they can do after they come abroad. So many people are afraid about being here for one or two years and how that's going to look on their resume. And when we talk to people like yourself, mm -hmm. everybody finds a way to take that next step. Some people open up an apartment study room. Some people open up a hagwon mm -hmm. academy. And you launched this kind of kind of massive or big YouTube channel. I wish and it was you got massive. A book series. Well, it, it's massive in my eyes. 50,000 oh. subscribers is massive in my opinion. Getting there. Um, could you tell us about how all that started? Yeah, it did not start as a business. I'll be perfectly honest with you. It, uh, I started out making videos on YouTube because I ended up getting uh, married to a woman who had a daughter already. And my wife, she's Filipino. And uh, my daughter, she's just turned eight. But at the time, she was... Four, turning five and I wanted her to learn English and because they live in the Philippines right now uh, and then they lived in the Philippines this started when we were dating first actually so I started thinking how can I teach her you know start to teach her English because she didn't really know any English at that point but I had goals of them coming to live with me you know when we got married so that's how I started teaching these phonics lessons that was that was my very first stuff i started teaching phonics i had 
no goal of, of sharing it with anybody, but I put it on YouTube because that was the easiest way to transfer the videos to them and, uh, and make sure that she could hear high quality audio types like that. And that's, that's how my channel started. That's, that's the birth of my channel. It was literally just to teach my daughter English. And, uh, it just kept going at that point. I kept making them. She stopped watching the videos because she learned English really quick. But uh, I kept making them and I started using them at my school. And then that's, I just kept, I just felt like I had to keep making them, you know? And then I started to enjoy it after a while. But uh, yeah, that's how my channel started. It was not a business. I, I didn't even think about monetization or anything like that. It was just a way to teach my daughter. That's probably the best reason I've heard for starting a YouTube channel yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was nothing else behind it. That was literally it, you know? I think that's what my, my channel said on the, the about me thing. It's like, I'm just here teaching my daughter. And I, it was, you know, it was one of those things like, if you found my video, hi, but like, <laughs> this isn't really for you kind of thing. But, uh, I, you know, I left everything public and people started to find it. I did oh if you looked at my keywords on my very first videos it's funny like I didn't know what a keyword was you know because it's like put in a search term or keyword term I had no idea so I, my, my thing would just be like ABC fonts and then I would just leave it at that I'd have two keywords on there and wow. yeah like <laughs> my most popular videos are popular because they rank for phonics, which is absurd if you think about it, because there's millions of phonics videos. But yeah, they rank for that. <laughs> I don't know. So, so how shocked or surprised were you when you started seeing your YouTube channel grow? December is when things, December this year is when things started to really just blow up. Because um, I, I, had, I had no subscribers really until last year, middle of the year, I think somewhere June or July. I think I got my first 2,000 subscribers. It was like, wow. And then I got my monetization thing. They're like, do you want to monetize it? Sure, why not? You know, and then it started making two cents a month. And I'm like, oh, cool. This isn't going to do anything. <laughs> and uh, then something happened. Um, oh, yeah. I, that was when I, I tried that. I tried to do a, um, an SEO thing, which I still don't understand. And I just chose one random video. At this point, I was on like level five phonics. And... Um, that video I made, I said, all right, let's 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 pay five bucks and have somebody do this SEO thing on it and do all these backlinks. And, you know, that was that was what I think really picked up because that video is my most popular video and by far my most valuable video. But, uh, yeah, come around December, there was this massive spike and I was getting like 12,000 subscribers a month. It was like, wow, what's going on? You know, I'm not doing anything. It just happened, so. Well, we're definitely gonna take that technique and use it as, as opinionated as I might be sometimes. <laughs> That's a very smart thing to do. I, I don't I don't I don't know what I'm just kind of bumbling through this. I swear, if I had someone who knew how to do SEO and and actually knew how to market things right, I have a marketing degree. But you know, honestly, marketing when I got my degree was not about online marketing. It was like marketing. I know how to make billboards and you know. <laughs> ground stuff i don't know how to do you know internet stuff as well as i should but uh, if i had someone man i could probably probably really take this up 
the English the English market on YouTube is 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 saturated, but it's not oversaturated. You know, there's there's a chance for anybody new to come up and just kill it. You know, I I know a couple of people who are making you know four or five thousand dollars a month just making educational videos teaching English. You know, and honestly, they're not they're not amazing. It's just one of those things where if you market yourself right. You know the algorithm will pick you up, and once once the YouTube algorithm picks you up, you've got it made. Just don't screw it up. You know, and it'll pick up one video. I have the algorithm has picked up two of my videos out of three hundred, and those two videos make eighty percent of my money every month, which isn't a lot. Don't I am not doing YouTube for money. <laughs> don't ever get that you know that idea. Definitely not making money on YouTube, but.、Uh, Yeah, it pays the bill here and there. Yeah, I think it's just really cool. I mean, it's got to be so satisfying to become an ESL teacher in Korea and then see that kind of open doors for you through your hard work on different platforms like YouTube.、Mm-hmm. Well, I think and around the world, I think the important thing about that is ESL itself will not open any doors for you. You have to make a door, and that's that's kind of what why you see some of the people become really successful here is. They got. They came here, and then they they decided to do something extra. They realized that the ESL thing was good, but they wanted more, and that's that's what really makes them step apart. You know, it wasn't the ESL itself. It was just the fact that it's like I want something more. I need something more. This is good, but it's not great. And it was that idea to get something great that that sparks people like you into making your side businesses too. You know, definitely. So I'm really curious. Did your YouTube channel and your books come about separately, or have they all come from the same motivation? Absolutely separately. My books started. My first book was an English book because my new school hired this absolutely atrocious grammar teacher who couldn't speak English, and I'm the writing teacher at this school. Right? I'm writing and speaking, and we hire this new lady. She's like, I went to an international、uh, English school. And、uh, I'm going to be the grammar teacher. Well, she said all that in Korean. She didn't say any of it in English, and she couldn't even like comfortably say hello to me. So that was pretty pretty awful. But you know, my boss was just like, "Oh, she's you know she's a nice one. The kids like her. Said, yeah, they like her because she's not strict and she gives them junk and you know she doesn't actually teach them. They hang out. So the kids couldn't started. Oh man, it was awful." We had a great grammar teacher before her, and then、uh, she went and got married to a foreigner, and now she lives in in America. But the grammar ability of all the kids just dropped to nothing. And I'm, how do you write? How do you teach writing when the kids don't know be verbs? You know, how do you teach them stuff when they can't capitalize words? I, I'm not even joking, man. They can't do. They couldn't do capitalization right. They couldn't do,、um, just simple verb conjugation. You know, it's like how do how do you do this? And、uh, that's why I made my first English book, and、um, I, I tried to think of a new way to teach because the kids couldn't do grammar. So my first book was about teaching a, a writing pattern, like how to build a sentence, and、um, that worked out really, really good. We I started designing the course when I was in the class. I'm like, you guys, you guys are killing me. We have to come up with a real new way for you to write, and not. Sound terrible? You know, ignore the fact that you can't understand why you're doing this. So I went for more of a native speaker approach, and because、uh, you know, when you when you learn English, 
you don't learn grammar first. You just learn how to speak, and then you learn grammar later. You know, they do it backwards here. They teach grammar, which is hard, and then they teach you how to use it, which is just so weird for me. It seems so backwards to native English. And yeah, like I said, that's that's why I started my my writing. Is I had a horrible grammar teacher, and I had no choice. That's a really great reason. I think that's the same exact reason that Hal and I ended up making our resources. That we just didn't get much support from the schools, and we needed some way to teach our kids. Absolutely, and it just kind of falls through there. So you said your next step is on to China. Yeah, I'm going to China on、uh, August 20th. Well, August 21st, first probably. What motivated you to do that? I can't stand my school right now.、Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it just, fall, it just fell apart. You know that that long period where we, we were trying to get rid of the grammar teacher, but he couldn't find a new teacher, and I think he just wasn't trying as hard. You know, like he was just. My boss, like I said, when I first started this school, he wanted to teach kids, and that was his motivation: was teaching them and having a real education system. And somewhere along the line, he just kind of went into autopilot because he wasn't very good at marketing the business. And I kept trying to help him. I mean, I'm a business guy. I'm like, hey, let me help you market this business. And he wouldn't take any of my advice. You know, that I don't know, whatever cultural thing or whatever you want to call it. But he wouldn't take my advice, and、uh, we just kind of stayed stagnant. And、uh, we got the horrible grammar teacher.、Uh, My other co-teacher, she wanted to quit. She kept trying to quit because she's like, "This lady's an idiot. I don't like her." And、uh, it, it just started to dissolve into this nothingness. And he tried to stay away from it. He tried to have this standoff approach and let things work out naturally. And I'm like, "Dude, this is going to come to fists if you don't take care of this." And、uh, he just he stopped respecting my opinion. And that's when things fell apart for me, really. And、uh, yeah, that that's it. China, China. I gotta move to China. You know. That's so interesting that you say the you say that because I'm thinking about the first school that you described,、mm-hmm. where there were the four expats or the four native English teachers,、yeah. and you had 90 to 120 kids.、Mm-hmm. Do you think that's you know the student population kind of had an effect on you too? So maybe you lost kids because he didn't really have an identity for his school. But also, maybe your dissatisfaction might have been tied to just not having that many kids to teach. No, no. Actually,、um, I actually really enjoy having classes with less students because I get more one-on-one work. But his is he just he just was not good at marketing. So here here's one of the big pitfalls here. Since he has a standoff approach and he doesn't want to be a strict principal with the teachers or with the kids, especially with the kids, the kids realize that there is nothing to fear. I didn't do my homework. No problem. I'm not going to get yelled at, or the yelling. You know, when he yelled at them, it was it was weak. You know, it was limp-wristed at the strongest. So he was afraid that the kids would quit and he would lose that source of income. So, like I said, it dissolved into this business instead of what he wanted originally. And because of that, the good kids realized in a month. You know, they're like, "Oh, this place is terrible. I, I need a better school," and they leave. So the good kids leave because of the limp-wristed approach at discipline, and the terrible kids are like, "Oh man, this is great! I'm not going anywhere, you know. <laughs> I'm just gonna stay here and and slack off." And yeah, that's what happened. 
So where are you going to go in China now? I have a job in Shenzhen, and、um, Lu Ho, I think is how you say it. It's an international school.、Um, I was talking to actually the first recruiter who found me a job in Korea. He started finding jobs in China, too. He, he expanded into China, and that, he's a, he's a, he's somebody that's a good idea to talk to because、uh, they came here as ESL teachers and then they made a recruiting firm. And now they don't teach anymore, but they're recruiters. But he found me, or his his company found me a job, and it just lucked out. It just was pure luck that it was this international private school, and、uh, it's funded by <laughs> these multimillionaires in America and in China. It's just like huge joint venture, and、uh, it's kind of an experimental school. So like.、Uh, It's different when when you go to China, everything is they're pushing this like British English thing. You know, when you when you graduate, you can go to England and and get internships at universities there. That's kind of like the popular thing. Well, the owners of this school decided, hey, we're going to do it for America. So we've got this school has contacts with、uh, Harvard. They have an adjunct professor from Harvard that comes once a year to teach the high school kids. They have one from Stanford and they have one from MIT. Wow, that sounds like it's right yeah, up it's your alley. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. So they started off by doing、um, an in, for high school. It was purely high school at first, and it, they decided to expand this year into primary. And I, I came at the perfect time, so I'm going to be there for for that. And it's really. We'll have to ring you on again when you、uh, when you get there and you get settled for about a sure, week or two. Sure, like I got I got no problem with that. I, it, it seems like it's going to be a, a great opportunity. And the other thing was is the other thing that really sold me on it was I talked to the people who work there, the vice principal and the other guy who's working there. He's actually from North Carolina. I lived in North Carolina for like eight or nine years. I can't remember now. And、uh, he's the vice principal, nice guy from America, vice principal, and she's a Chinese lady who. Perfect English. She she lived in、uh, Toronto for a long time, and they're running a school. And they're like, look, we we just it's a rich boarding school. You know, all the kids they stay there for five days a week, and then they go home on the weekends. And、um, they're like, we're trying to do something really different here. And I I like the message that they were selling, and I I really I really felt comfortable with them. But the thing that really caught my attention was the owner the 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 guy who runs the whole school system, he's like, I want to have an interview with him, and I got really nervous because I'm like, why? I already have the job, you know. <laughs> We sign contracts, and I got really nervous thinking something was wrong, but that was not the case. Come to find out, the the guy who started this school, he he、uh, graduated from graduate school in Texas, and、uh, he's the one who set up this whole system, and he wanted to talk to me because he has an MBA too. And he's like, "Why? Why are you doing this?" And we had this interesting conversation, and it turned into he started to ask me about my side projects. He had actually researched me, and that kind of blew my mind. And he's like, "Look, I want to invest in doing your, you know, your YouTube stuff, doing more video video lessons and things, but outside of YouTube for China. And I want to invest in your publications and things like that. I want you to write more books for our school." And I was like, okay, I like this. So, 
he he tossed a whole bunch of opportunities on the table, and he's like, you know, I, I'm going to have you get lot lessons for Chinese, because we're going to be opening more schools after you know this one's all situated, and I want you to be a director. So, man, this all came out of left field like pure luck. Hell yeah, man! That sounds amazing. <laughs> Seriously, left field. This is yeah, unexpected. Well, it's like I like I keep telling everyone because I'm super pessimistic. Is I'm like this is either going to be amazing or just a complete nightmare, and I'm trying to be I'm trying so hard to be optimistic this time, and just be like, no, everything's going to work out, man. Everything's going to work out. I'm trying to have that wide-eyed enthusiasm that those uh, you know, those fundamental Christians had about life. I'm trying to, I'm seriously trying to be like, let's do this. <laughs> yeah. That sounds really incredible. <laughs> I guess, um, I guess we need to wind down sure. here then and pick up in maybe a month or two later when you've been yeah, there whenever. for a while. I'm pretty sure you're going to find more interesting people than me. <laughs> There's a lot of really successful guys out there, you know. Oh, uh, no, we're just going to keep bothering you. We're going <laughs> to going to keep bringing you Fire on. away i'm cool with it i'm i'm pretty pretty boring guy <laughs> all right well chris thanks a ton for coming on let me tell our listeners uh to check you out on listen and learn english on youtube and to check out your storyteller series we'll put links to both those in our descriptions cool, below appreciate it. um do you want to tell our our folks any last thing hey i'm just happy that you listened this long and i hope you have a great day <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.